extra money coming into the Premier League and the capacity that it gives them to buy players and possibly to build stadiums means that the attractiveness of the Premier League relative to those leagues is growing. And that creates the po real possibility that those other leagues just become feeders for the Premier League. They develop players and then sell them on uh, to, to the Premier League. Hello and welcome to Football Ramble Daily Book Club with me, Kate Mason. Me, Andy Brassel. And me, Luke Moore. He didn't look happy coming forward, Anelka. And he's not happy now because it's red in Russia. This English night in Europe is Manchester United's night. Best in the Premier League. Their best in the Champions League. Thanks to Edwin van der Sar's save. This week for Book Club, we've been reading Sockonomics. If you got the chance to, hope you enjoyed it. The book's an international bestseller, written by two brilliant men, journalist Simon Cooper and economist Stefan Zemanski. It's the fifth edition of an ongoing project that started as Why England Lose. If you have picked it up, you'll, like us, now be finding the game very simple and will never be surprised again. There was a recent paper actually in, uh, in the American Economic Review. They actually have a pretty small sample of 129 shootouts. They show that the first kicking team wins 60% uh, of the cases, so a huge effect. So it's a 20% difference between being first or second. Soconomics makes the world of football seem organised, totally clear if you only have the tools, which is what Cooper and Smatsky bring you in a way even the most uh, maths-averse can grasp. They bring new eyes to the game and then explain the data so you can read it that way too. If that sounds a bit dry, don't worry. There are brilliant anecdotes, Edwin van der Sar's left hand, secret football meetings in France and a former Israeli prime minister all feature. And it's often very funny. It does something special. It's a book that makes you actually want to take notes. You've come away feeling as though you could now win pretty much any football argument, which must have been a pretty big draw for you, Luke Moore. Yeah, I feel so seen. Um, I, I read this book um, back in 2009 when it first came out when it was called Why England Lose and uh, I agree with that assessment it's um, yeah it's, it's been a, it's been a it's been a really good journey to kind of revisit it and, and look back over it it's been been fascinating but yeah it's it's um, it's great to be back here it's great to have you in, in the hot seat Kate as well um, I'm very happy just to play my role as someone who quite enjoyed reading a book once it's going to be a little, little bit of fun yeah, it is an extremely hot seat, actually, now that we've all shut our <laughs> yeah. windows in this boiling sunshine. Um, the thought of you having another tool for your intellectual arsenal, Andy Brassel, is a little bit intimidating. How do you get on with it? I, you know what? I thought, given the subject matter, um, I'd never read it, actually. Um, I was expecting something quite dry, and I didn't get that at all. Like you said, um, I think the the use of anecdotes is is, is really, really helpful. Um, it's very open. It's very accessible. And uh, as we were hearing, like the evolutional nature of it is, is great. It's quite a, a new concept, that really, isn't it? A work that... Um, that doesn't just have a few extra lines written. This isn't a case of when you say fourth or fifth edition, um, oh, it's updated to include uh, the 2011 Champions League final or whatever. The whole thing, the whole concept evolves and they go back and examine previous truths that have either been proven or challenged. I, I like the way it's a conversation. I like the way it brings in other people's theories and other um, people's points of view and their research. And so in that way, I, I feel that even though it is quite open and I'm a very unscientific person, I would say generally, um, I, I think even if you are quite science averse, it does basically operate on, on scientific principles. That idea of it isn't right, th this is what the truth is. It's this is what the theory is let's discuss it and it kind of opens up to a, a whole community which kind of I think affects the way you read it as well because it's not just that you read it and you're not along and go oh that's interesting you feel yourself almost debating and arguing with the authors as you go along I think yeah and you talk about that community Andy it it turns out that we're in illustrious company this week I got the chance to speak to Simon Cooper about Soconomics here's what he mentioned I found that Soconomics has opened doors mostly to the people who run the clubs. They often have read Soconomics. So um, I know someone like Andrea Agnelli at Juventus, 
is a reader or John Henry of Liverpool. And that has helped in some cases more than others in getting access to talking to those people. Uh, Billy Bean, um, the man who made Moneyball, the Oakland A's, I became quite friendly with for a while. Sadly, I haven't seen him for years because I haven't been to California. So that, that's been really good. In terms of the people, uh, managers and players, they tend not, in my experience, to read many football books. Alex Ferguson did say to somebody who passed this on to me, he said, I think a lot of people in football don't like Simon Cooper, which may well be true. Uh, and that may be something to do with the kind of attempt to debunk my sort of questioning of the way things are done. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, Ferguson has read football against the enemy, at least. I don't know if he's read Soconomics. So it opens doors more at the boardroom level, the, the president's level, than at the coach's level, I'd say. Okay, so players and managers not really reading Soconomics, but should they be, Luke? Um, yeah, I probably think I, I think they should, and I'll tell you why. Because the the the, the thing I like about this book and the, and the theme I really chimes with me is that pervading it throughout is this idea that football is too insular and a little bit too dogmatic. And I think Cooper and Szymanski do a pretty good job of identifying and then suggesting ways to treat football's own brand of exceptionalism really because football's great at like dogmatic ideas accepted wisdom exceptionalism and it certainly was back in 2009 when why england lose came out which is my version of the book and part of the appeal of this book is it's a, a buster of myths you know a kind of super skeptic that arrives and tears up as much as as he can about the conventional thinking and, and something about that appeals to me a great deal because um really Football is, is it, I think, not so much these days, but traditionally has been built on a series of accepted points that are that no one can really deviate from, and that, and that football operates within this framework that is established and can't in any way be changed. And the irony of that is that the people who achieve the most invariably are the people who do recognise that and then try and think differently about it. So, do I think the you know do I think the football world would be greatly improved if if managers and, and players were given this book as a matter of course you know probably not but I do think it offers at least some some interesting ideas about how people can think a little bit more originally and I think it should be applauded for that well one of the myth busters that um really struck me is is someone you're a particular fan of actually Luke Jean-Michel Olas his transfer rules in the gentlemen yeah. prefer blondes section. That's exactly what you're talking about. That's the, the first paragraph, the first uh, chapter in this in yeah. Stockonomics. This one that, that Andy and I have, have been reading, the um, fifth edition. And it's all about that. It's about this intrinsic like unreliability of all of these tools that people have been using for generations to make decisions that Cooper particularly seems to think are erroneous. Yeah, and I think, um, I mean... Jean-Michel Olas is someone that I use as a stick repeatedly to beat Andy with because I like to compare Andy to him. I like to <laughs> poke Andy about him. And, and that happens on the continent quite a lot. But that chapter is really interesting because it what it does is it actually lays bare, the, the for those who haven't read the book, it, it lays bare this, the mistakes that are consistently made within football about the transfer market. And it also uses examples of Brian Clough and Peter Taylor and how they used to work it. And it comes up with all these quite interesting solutions and ideas like you could buy players who've got personal problems at a far cheaper price and spend your time trying to help those personal problems because that's more uh, efficient and that's a much more um, sort of um, clever way of perhaps getting the most out of a signing. But one thing it doesn't do enough of, to my memory, and it might it might do it in a later in a later edition. And I'll throw this to Andy: is that I think there's an idea that the transfer market is now something that it never used to be. I, I feel like. Maybe my detail and my memory is a little bit sketchy on this, but I feel like, Andy, the transfer market used to be something that you would use to supplement what you were trying to do. It, you wouldn't base your whole club outlook and the entirety of your plans on the transfer market. And I think that Stockonomics kind of implies that without explicitly stating it. But that's a recognition of how the world's changed, isn't it? because that's globalization yeah. for you. So and what I think has, has worked really well, actually, with this update of, of Soconomics, and the thing is, even though, um, just to 
outline if you haven't read the book um even though we're reading different editions um it, it's really good in that it telegraphs the bits that are newer so it's, it's not like it all blends together and if it does it marks this this is something that we didn't speak about in the first edition when it was why england lose in the first place and this is a bit that we've added on so you know where the seams are which i think is is quite helpful because if you think how much football has changed in that in that time even in the 11 years since um Soconomics was originally written as why england lose it's enormous and i think that's something that must have been quite intimidating when it came to rewriting bits of the book because um one thing that's acknowledged a bit later on um certainly when we we, we talk about um i think it's in the in, in the chapter um a, a decent business at last where it talks quite a lot about social media and the idea that football clubs at last could monetize the unmonetizable which is fans loyalty and it's a sort of pathway to it's a pathway to that um that's something that you know could only have been added later on and um you know just changes the whole way that they perceive at least the authors perceive football as a business yeah and you mentioned of course this this flow the idea that socconomics is a project that that continues and develops because football develops and um when i spoke to simon he said that the next there would be another one coming out in um just before the qatar world cup in 2022 so they've given themselves a tiny bit of a break before then uh but it is so interesting to see the way that they approach football as a business from a kind of business perspective um mm. sticking with your friend olas uh, luke that, that section, there was a lot of anecdotes about how transfers weren't helped to settle in. So there was this perceived wis- received yeah. wisdom at the time that, you know, you couldn't buy Brazilians because they just, what, you know, what were they like? They just wouldn't settle in in southwest London. And, and, and as soon as you actually start to give them the, the ability to settle in, just get someone to help them. You know, these are prize assets and they're just being treated as though they have the skills to, to live life and to immediately settle that they have no reason there's no reason why they would have those skills yeah and i think you know on, on behalf of you kate um I'll, I'll defend southwest london and so there's absolutely nothing wrong with it um i know you're a very happy resident of the area and i'm just down the road so um there's isn't there a part in it about nicholas and elka where it talks about um his time at real madrid and, and yeah and, and, and this and this is what i mean about the idea of football being quite dogmatic, what obviously comes as a consequence of dogma is this very, very slow, almost glacial pace that things change because people say, no, this is how it's always been done. This is how we're always going to do it. And if you think about it, and it's laid bare really well in this book, the very idea of you shelling out tens of millions of pounds for a, a essentially an asset and then not and then thinking your work is done, it's not just... Um, kind of negligent it's just ridiculously stupid it's a stupid thing to do if you're going to pay 20 million pounds for a football player why not pay 21 million pounds and use that million pounds to make sure they've got the best chance of being successful for your club that they can have and so and and i I really i also really wanted to make the point that in football more recently i think there's been this schism between the for want of a better phrase because i've actually quite i actually quite dislike the phrase but the proper football men on one side who do the eye test who are these old-fashioned type guys and the data nerds on the other side who and this this kind of cold war between them when it comes to football and one is right and one are a bunch of poindexters who know the the price of everything and the value of nothing and the other are a bunch of kind of old-fashioned greybeards who who don't know the modern world when in actual fact of course as is the case with with most things it's a bit from column a and a bit from column b and what could be best served for the sport be if they all work together a bit more but i do think this book when it first came out i think whenever it was in 2009 it did strike a very hefty early blow for the for the new stats the kind of new thinking around football which i think rubbed a lot of people up the wrong way wrongly in my view but nonetheless it did happen yeah and in a way it's the kind of dichotomy at the the heart of this book really isn't it how it's it's presented to you in a very uh clinical business um this is why football is a fucked up business kind of way but on the other hand 
the, the, the authors believe, or at least Simon Cooper, it, it seems, believes that football shouldn't be a business. So, so that's a really interesting thing at the heart of it. Now, I, I realise there are um, massive contradictions at the heart of, of every concept. But when you think about, without getting too grand about it, the battle for the soul of football, I think that's something that you really feel in this, which is something that you don't expect to feel in this because the very title, Soconomics, it sounds all very like, robotic and businesslike, but actually there's quite a lot of emotion and morality in the heart of this book, isn't there? Yeah, and the, and the particularly interesting thing I think you're referencing there, Andy, is that um, they say basically that sugar daddies of these big clubs are good for the game and that in yes. terms of financial fair play, that it shouldn't be the case that football clubs break even. They should be trying to just invest as much money as they possibly can um, into it. I mean, I don't know if there's any relevance to the fact that Simon Cooper... Um, lives in Paris and uh, there's one particularly notable club for whom that is the case in the vicinity of him. But um, I don't know what you made of that. It's, it's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because you would assume, and th- this is what what's really good, uh, I think, about this book, is that it demolishes preconceptions on every third page. You would assume that financial fair play would be applauded here. But in fact, and I don't think this is completely wrong by any stretch of the imagination, financial fair play is so tied to platiny in the way that the book's told. Um, And that's before you get to the bit where he comes from a country where um, ultra-free market capitalism is not really entirely embraced or or understood and maybe that's maybe that's part of Platini's mindset that's 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 not really explored in this um is it's, it's something that you you can't separate Platini and FFP in this can you so that's always a shadow over the way that it's that it's looked at and it's judged in this book and i think if you were um maybe a, a Manchester City fan for example who thinks that you're team gets or your club I should say gets a really hard time in the media when when I'm talking about bits where you're nodding along in a book I think there are a lot of Manchester City fans and probably a lot of Newcastle United fans on the brink of their their future takeover who would nod along with this and 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 say yeah yeah absolutely I I I feel we've been given stick for completely unfair reasons you find a lot a lot of a lot of sympathy in this wouldn't you yeah, and I think let's we're going to come back in the second half to some of these deeper questions about the soul of football. But um, before we go to a break, I wanted to just look a little bit at probably one of my favourite chapters. We've mentioned Nicholas and Yelka has already come up. Um, the chapter is The Economist's Fear of the Penalty Kick. Are penalties cosmically unfair or only if you are Nicholas and Yelka? Um, and basically, as Luke mentioned, I think earlier, the book is arranged into... Oh, sorry, Andy, it was probably you, um, arranged into chapters that are almost kind of seminars and and they're organised in sections that really convey how the book has progressed over time and how they've added a lot of thinking to what they're trying to convey. And I think actually that title to that chapter um, expresses a lot of what the book is about. It's got a bit of humour, it's got a bit of knowingness and it's got a bit of, you know, core football in it it's it's focused around the the bit that I really like it's focused around the Chelsea Manchester United Champions League final in 2008 went to penalties classic moment in football illustrated by analysis of game theory I mean what more could you want if you're not familiar with game theory (laughs) um, good example is the prisoner's dilemma uh, as I learn Um, basically it's any situation where what you would do depends on what I would do and vice versa. So a penalty shootout is pretty much the the perfect example of this. And I think one of the book's strengths is really to cover both quite complicated arguments in a way that you you really grasp them. Yeah, I th- it's a really interesting chapter. I think it's one of the, one of the one of the most interesting ones actually, because what it does is it it, it and and again to to hark back to to the idea of the time it was written in the edition I've got it, it England's 
particular record when it comes to penalties has in penalty shootouts of course is noticeably and famously poor and we didn't have this Gareth Southgate kind of rehabilitation that, that we we've subsequently seen which probably most people would would concede isn't fully concluded yet anyway but the idea of um of assessing penalty shootouts in this way using game theory using psychology using economists papers but doing it in an accessible way you know it's easy to forget it was actually quite revolutionary back in 2008 2009 or whenever it was and he uses a great um one of my personal favourite football moments, actually, in 2006 when Argentina played Germany in the World Cup and, and Jens Lehmann in the German goal using uh, notes famously to, to, to get Germany and guide them through that penalty shootout. But the, the key interesting part of that chapter for me is the, the absolutely key moment in that penalty shootout is when Lehmann goes up against Esteban Cambiasso. Jens Lehmann didn't actually have any info about Cambiasso. But the, the sheer act of looking at the notepaper, which then made Cambiasso think, <laughs> oh, he does know something about me, that getting inside his head psychologically and then Germany triumphing, essentially for that reason, is a really interesting game-within-a-game duel that I think speaks to the very heart of what football can be about. And I think it's a brilliantly told part of the book. And I think it's, it's, it's right that it's included because it starts off being this thing, as you say, Kate, about game theory and introducing people to the idea of the zero-sum game, etc. But it actually becomes a very human story. And I think, I think the part of the reason I like the book is because it talks as much about human behaviour in a football setting as it does football. It's not really a straight football book per se. It's more of an anthropological one, really, isn't it? Yeah, it absolutely reminded me as well. You remember football earlier in the season when it was all being played normally. Um, Tottenham went out in the FA Cup to, to Norwich and Tim Cool had uh, the penalties on, on, the on water his bottle, yeah. water bottle. Yeah. And it's exactly what you're talking about with the Cambiasso situation because basically Stefan and Simon seem to say that ultimately there's too much there's magic in in the human footballer taking the penalty they've managed to basically without thinking about it work in such a way that they they can outthink their opponents but Kate often. do you know what the key part of that is the key part of that is actually it's a really understated part of the chapter but it and it would escape it might even escape attention but what he actually says in that bit is a little throwaway line, but I think it's really important. In one of the uh, Jens Lehmann, um, I think it's the Jens Lehmann part, researched notes on the penalty taker, he says something like, oh, and Jens Lehmann goes the right way based on his um, research, but the penalty is too good and it goes in the corner. And that's mm -hmm. the point. If the penalty is good enough, it doesn't actually matter. So the, so the goalkeeper has to bring some psychology in if they can because they need to get an advantage in some way. I thought that was really telling as well, actually. I think the thing that's the most interesting part of this chapter to, to, to me is, I think it's the heart of the whole book, actually. It's, you know, we think of football and people who um, appreciate and observe and analyze and work in football as like, like very different people. You know, we always set it up as a juxtaposition, don't we, between, uh, you know, nouveau analysts and stats geeks versus real football men. But actually, I think in, in, in there's the bit that's based around the 2008 Champions League final shootout um, just shows how wrong that is and how wrong that is and how there's far more that unites us than divides us actually i mean it's um based around um the economist isn't it uh, ignacio palacios huerta um from from the basque country who um started um analyzing the way penalties were taken and he, he starts doing it in a very primitive way in the mid 90s doesn't he he gets loads of videotapes and he exhaustively watches like thousands and thousands of videotapes that his wife and mum send him from home in Spain while he's studying in the, in the US. And he starts analysing that way. And then obviously he's, he's sent a paper, we, we find out, to um, his, his, his results of his research to a friend of Avram Grant's. And he's watching it at home and he realises that Chelsea are, are using some of his tells and some of his research. And it's amazing because he's absolutely 
open mouth. He's like a kid at Christmas. And and that's that's what really gets me about this. The fact that, you know, actually it's it's not the stats geeks versus the real football men, is it? It's it's the fact that in the moment of the game, whatever path took you up until that point, you're all sort of wrapped up in this in sort of this sort of childlike wonder when you're in the moment, which I think is is really great. And it's one of the things that does make the whole book so accessible, I think. Oh, guys, well, I think let's halt there in a moment of childlike wonder and let you just rest <laughs> in that for a bit. <laughs> That's it for part one. Um, coming up in the second half, a bit of a vanger loving, perhaps, and we'll also talk about what Soconomics says about what's happening right now. 4 to 2 in Elfmeterschießen, 5 to 3 with the two restlichen Toren. Esteban Campiasso gegen Jens Lehmann. And he lehmt a long Anlauf. 7, 8 meters. Campiasso with links. Lehmann hält. We sind in the Halbfinale. And the Deutschen stürmen Richtung Lehmann. Jens Supermann in Berlin. He hält den Elfmeter von Esteban Campiasso. Welcome back to the book club with Luke Moore, Andy Russell and me, Kate Mason. This week we're talking about Simon Cooper and Stefan Zamansky's Soconomics. And like any thoughtful people dealing with a topic so massive, Simon and Stefan have reworked many of their theories as football and life has played out differently to the way they expected. Here's Simon. Uh, well, one day I suppose even Stefan and I might die, so it will end. But I do see it as an ongoing project. I mean, partly because there's always new things happening, new people you speak to, ideas that you get that you want to stick in the book, and football changes. And also, you know, you try and predict and it's wrong. And we've gone back and um, rewritten because, you know, when the facts change, we change our mind. So, for example, in the first edition, we had a view that rich, large countries like Japan and the U.S., and countries around the world, so football mad, quite good countries like Turkey and Iraq at the time, we predicted, would start to catch up with Western Europe. Because we thought you got this insane situation that Western Europe, only 5% of the world population, is dominant in international football. I'm not talking about the clubs, because obviously they're dominant because they have more money, but the national teams. And so in 2008-9, we thought, well, that's going to change. Everyone's just going to copy what the Western Europeans do. And it turns out, no, uh, the Western Europeans are impregnable. Uh, they've now won four World Cups running. Uh, even Brazil can't really keep up anymore. And so that's a prediction that we've had to revise. I don't see the US or Japan, let alone Turkey, catching up anytime soon. So football keeps changing and surprising you. A lot of the book, I think, has held up very well. But when it hasn't, we, we want to go back and try and understand what is actually happening. So we touched on it in part one, guys, but one of the things that is quite fun about this book um, is the way that Simon and Stefan do relate the, prog- the development of their theories to what's been going on in real time over the last uh, few years from uh, the book that Luke's been talking about, 2009 version, to the, the one that Andy and I have been reading, the 2018 uh, core Soconomics text. Um, and one of the things... Aside from Andy's childlike wonder that I particularly enjoyed about <laughs> this one, is the way that they bring you this this feeling of of inside knowledge or inside transferable knowledge, if you like. Um, there's a section where they talk about Gavin Fleeg, the Man City performance analyst, and y- you feel as though you're um, getting to hear from people really at the heart of the game, and then also look over what they've been saying and analyze it with with new tools that you maybe didn't have until you um, until you read the book. Um, but what's also interesting is that in that section, um, Simon and Stefan talk about how they had been ham- at Manchester City. They'd been hammering team the team over tackle numbers because this was like an early use of data. And then later on realised that it made no difference. An example is Paolo Maldini. He basically has one tackle every two games because his positioning is so good that he, he doesn't need to actually make those like lunging tackles like we all do in in our amateur football. Um, do you think that's that could be one 
explanation perhaps for football's for football being so slow sometimes in adopting these advances in thinking and technology they're waiting for other people to go first and kind of stress test that yeah i, th- I think that's the interesting thing isn't it about soconomics then and now because our use of data in football is such a young thing and so how it the book fits into the world when it came out in 2009 and how it fits into the world now is completely different because I think the more we use data now, and I think even football fans, whether the, even football fans who would consider themselves quite stats allergic, they'd still be able to trot out some stuff when they're chatting to it, chatting about it with, with their mates, wouldn't they? Whether it be, um, how many goals the the top scorers scored this season or how many clean sheets the the, the the teams kept, even if it's like relatively simple top line stuff like that. Everyone has some sort of interest in stats to a, a greater or lesser extent because of that. But when you compare it and they, they bring in the comparisons, don't they, with, with American sports at, at various points. And um, obviously Billy Bean comes out up quite a lot in it as, as, as well. Um, I think you're, you're reminded of the fact that um, stats are pretty young in football, in terms of the way we perceive them and incorporate them in our experience of the game. And it's like any language you can think of, really. The more you know, the more you realise you don't know. So it's one thing having the numbers, and it's another thing entirely applying them. And that's something that I guess like becomes apparent to us all the time. Uh, like if you think of match of the day, for example, that in the last what season or so has started putting up on the stats over the little um, flash interviews that come after the games, you know, that it will have like, you know, possession, free kicks, corners, and then it'll have XG, which is, is, is quite a new thing. But again, this is something that's raw data that's not necessarily applied in an altogether helpful way a lot of the time. So it's it's a way to start a discussion, but it's definitely not a way to finish a discussion yet. But you do feel that that development of the use of data is, is really important, not just in um, the way we perceive football generally, but certainly in the life of the book and the way we interact with the book. So I think, say, for example... For Luke, if you're flicking back through the book now, how differently do you perceive it to how you would have perceived it when you first read it 11 years ago? Well, obviously, Andy, I'm much uh, more refined and urbane and clever now than I was then. So, <laughs> how could that be possible, Luke? Well, you say that, Kate. You know, that question has been asked uh, quite a few times. So, it's very difficult for me to be objective on it. But no, seriously, I think when I read back through it, it to be honest, a lot of it is is outdated and i think that when i first heard the interview that kate did with simon and he talked about it being an ongoing project my first thought was okay that's a really nice idea i haven't really thought of a book being like that before but then my second thought was well actually yeah for this book to maintain its relevance in the modern world it is going to have to be an ongoing project or it's just going to be a time capsule of a project that's going to exist in one certain piece of time and that's going to be that. And that, of course, doesn't really serve anyone, uh, least of all the bottom line of the authors and the publisher. But that, that's probably a more cynical point. The, 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 what I wanted to expand upon was was Andy's chat about data and about it being the start of a conversation and, and rather a start of a conversation than, 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 than an end to one, if you like. I think it's a really helpful phrase. And I, and I think also what it does is it, is it allows us to develop this idea of this dichotomy between um, the proper football men on one side and the data people on the other. Because, of course, it's not really a dichotomy. It's not a, a battle to be fought between um, two factions, chiefly because it's much more of a scale. So even if you are one of these proper football men, even if you don't admit it or you don't realise it, you're actually on the scale of data and statistics and tactics already. Because if even if you if you you're a real Harry Redknapp of, of a guy, and you say, "Oh no, it's all about players," and ninety percent of any success I've had has been about players, that may well be true. But Harry Redknapp has his 
as has been a point made by much more learned people than me, Harry Redknapp still picks a goalkeeper. He still picks strikers. He still picks players in positions, which of course is the very basis of of, of tactics. And, and if you're someone who rallies against, you know, the advent of zonal marking or whatever, well, a lot of those people still want to see someone on a post defending a set piece, which of course is exactly that. So, so there is a confusion around this and everyone is on this scale because everyone acknowledges that, as Andy's also correctly said, scoring of goals and tallying the amount of goals that are scored is very helpful for lots, lots of different reasons. So there is, a, there is a, a data-led approach by everyone to an extent. And I think what this book does in its mode of continually being updated is it actually says, here's what the data says. And there have been some criticism about this book that have said the data isn't good enough and it's not extensive enough and it's been interpreted in a certain way. But nevertheless, the data is there. But it applies the data and develops, as I said before the break, what is actually quite a human story because it doesn't um, it doesn't um, ignore the human stories behind the sport because because sport you know football like any sport is essentially a sport of human beings and so it does serve both masters really quite well that are on each ends of this scale one review of that early edition um by cambridge professor david runciman uh said that obviously these guys were going after the kind of money ball for football tag so referring to that michael lewis book charting the success of the oakland a's yeah billy bean we've mentioned a few times um in this and he said basically that they'd failed in their attempt to to, to create a money ball uh, for football, yeah. and one of the one of the re- one of the reasons for that for that was, for example, this book obviously venerates Arsene Wenger, um, but as a reference, he was he was kind of missing in the White England Lose book. Now in Soconomics, he's on something like a tenth of the pages. I had a little look. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's interesting because because I mean on that front, that, that, I think that's really interesting, chiefly because I think you have to be very careful trying to. You have to be very careful with that approach. If you set out and say, that book, Moneyball, has done that for baseball. And I've read Moneyball a couple of times. I read it when it first came out, and I read it again for a, a rival book club I had to do about a year ago. And, what? And, <laughs> I know, we, we, of which we will not speak. But the, um, but, but the idea of transferring things across between sports just because it's been done elsewhere is rarely helpful and is regularly actually quite um, obstructive to what you want to do. Now, I'll I'll use another example um, for something like VAR. Well, people will say, well, VAR is used all the time in rugby union and all the time in NFL and all the time in these different sports. But the problem is the sports are so vastly different that the comparison is essentially redundant because if you take football, there's roughly speaking, generally, I think two and a bit goals per game on average. So the big moments become absolutely massive in a way they're not big in much higher scoring games. So is it actually that helpful to compare sports? Is it that helpful to compare uh, or, or even to try and attempt to do what some book has done for some other sport for football. I don't necessarily think it is. And I think if you're not careful, you can end up with something that's a complete mess. This book isn't that, but nor do I think this book is the, is the money ball of, of, of football. Well, I think there's, there's two ways of, of looking at that, isn't there? Because you're right. If like you're making the comparison of um, the way that a video assistant referee works in rugby and how it works in football, of course, saying because it works in rugby it should work in football. There's no reason it can't work in football. You can use it on the same basis. Of course, that's nonsense. On the other hand, to compare notes and to come to some sort of common basic principles of best practice, I don't, I don't think is a is a bad thing at all. I mean, one of the other main themes of the book, isn't it, uh, is about um, England's insularity, which really is an extension of what they're saying in the earlier chapters about football's insularity. I mean, we we have this um, chapter going back to the original title, Kate, Why England Lose and Other Europeans Win. And much of it, and, and again, another thing I really like about the book is it doesn't, A, profess to have all the answers, and B, it doesn't deny the existence of luck. Because, as mm. Luke says, it's a, it's a sport played by humans. But I think that's a really nice link, that the fact that you get um, that, that strong feeling about the insularity of football and things have always been done this way. And then 
the focus on this central chapter, why England lose about English football's um, traditional superiority complex and traditional insularity, which is poked in the most rude of fashions in 1953 when the Hungarians come and, and win at Wembley. And, you know, when um, Simon Cooper talks, doesn't he, about how they changed the title from why England lose to Soconomics, and obviously there's quite a marketing imperative behind that when you're, when you're selling it in England. But also, I think this emerges as the central chapter for a reason. Now, Simon Cooper promised to listen to this podcast, so no pressure, guys. Um, but perhaps <laughs> this is the moment the moment for us to deliver our pitch on what we would like to see more of in this uh, 2022 edition, forthcoming edition of Soconomics, edition six. Because for me, um, actually something that Simon brought up when we spoke was that one thing that is broadly missing from Soconomics is women, women's football. Um, and he said it was something that he'd started to become very interested in and, and there is data available uh, to talk about it in the next edition. And and um, there's a section in Need Not Apply that I found pretty interesting. And I, well, I'm going to read you it. Um, it says, only one category of players still suffers routine discrimination in European male football, women. It's true that on average, top-class female athletes are less quick and physically strong than top-class male athletes. Yet the superstars of women's football, think Carly Lloyd of the US, are so skillful and tactically gifted, gifted that they are surely better players than most male professionals. Now, I mean, I would absolutely love for that to be true. But to me, it feels like they've slightly just slotted that in um, as a tiny bit of a throwaway. It doesn't seem to be as rigorously assessed as many of the other points that feature in the book. And it's actually in the chapter Need Not Apply that's mainly about racism in the game, uh, which is something it's absolutely fascinating to touch on through an economics perspective. Yeah, I think that's the the nature of the book, isn't it? That some bits are going to feel slotted in because it is constantly evolving and so much changes across quite short periods that it's quite an arduous process i would imagine uh reshuffling it and and getting it to all hang together and and make some sense um clearly um the progression of of women's football has, has been something enormous and especially in france where simon cooper's writing from in um the last decade um but the, the other thing I would like to see more of that that was not excluded, but was just touched on. When it comes to the FFP conversation, um, this is something I would like to see um, revisited a little bit. Um, the acknowledgement that creating huge financial obligations for a club, and once those contracts have been signed, there's nothing to stop the sugar daddy walking away. We, we touch on in the book, earlier in the book, ad administration and the way that um, football clubs, you know, they're, they're like cockroaches. They just survive anything. You know, it's, it's in Safer Than the Bank of England, why football clubs almost never disappear. And that is one of our universal truths, isn't it? And I'd be interested to hear Luke's perspective on this as a, as a Portsmouth fan, having been there and, and, and got the T-shirt. The fact that um, it's seen as one of our universal truths that football clubs surviving and continuing as community assets is paramount and that's something that we can put our faith in and something that is acknowledged but um maybe not more fully explored that i'd be really interested to hear about is what these football clubs leave behind them when they basically ditch a load of debt and start again so we've seen it with so many clubs in english football i mean obviously portsmouth are one leicester were another before they they came back and and won the premier league and i was talking to a friend about this a while back who's um, an exeter city fan and he was saying about when um, the trust took over the club the supporters trust took over the club they found it really difficult to get buy-in from local businesses because the name of the club was mud because it reneged on so many debts. And we're not talking about, you know, clubs who um, have, have sold that club a player and are not getting all their money, although that's damaging and, and not right. But we're, we're talking about, say, for example, um, a local caterer 
who's provided £4,000 worth of food and will never get that money back and maybe goes bust because of that. Yeah, and I, I think I could probably hopefully try and answer Kate's question and, and kind of address your points as well, Andy, at the same time, if I may. I mean, I, I would definitely like to see um, someone like Simon and, and, and Stefan um, talk a bit about um, what the future of football looks like financially, uh, in this in this country, chiefly because we're I, I hear all the time in my capacity as a football fan, but also as a broadcaster, that this current model of football is in quotes not sustainable. Yet it still manages to sustain itself for the thirteen or so years that I've been broadcasting so far, and I imagine it will in the foreseeable future. I mean, you know, COVID notwithstanding, I mean that might be a bit of a game changer. So I'd like to see them address whether it is actually sustainable using economics and data and statistics and all the rest of it to give us a genuine bit of insight on that. So that's what I'd like to see more of. Secondly, um, to address Andy's points on the, on the Portsmouth thing, it is absolutely the case that um, with, the, with the trials and tribulations that Portsmouth went through financially um, upon their um, relegation from the Premier League in 2010, that, that a lot of local businesses, including, you know, particularly um, important ones like St. John's Ambulance, for example, were yeah, essentially stiffed financially by this, by this financial meltdown from, 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 from what is a, a very important part of the community in Portsmouth. And the rebuilding of the trust in that institution was quite hard won, actually, from what I know, uh, and, and took a long time to go. Now, of course, it was accelerated by the idea that the club was actually taken on board by the fans themselves, which did a lot of that work. But it does show you that how in hoc football is these days to finances. Now, I don't just mean your obvious examples of with Man City and PSG and all the rest of it. And some of the, the comments you guys made in the first half, I didn't fully agree with, but, but, but we've moved on now. I don't just mean that. I mean that at every level, the financial impact or the financial concern is dictated um, um it dictates really what, what the football club can do. Now, a reason I say that is just to use a quick example with Portsmouth again. Everyone knows what happens with, Port, with Portsmouth in 2010 and how long it's taken them to get back to where they are now. But not everyone really talks about the idea of the circumstances that how Portsmouth got promoted to the Premier League in the first place. Well, the reason Portsmouth got promoted to the Premier League in the first place is because of the collapse of ITV Digital, effectively. Portsmouth were insulated from that by the ownership they had at the time, but a large percentage of football league clubs were in big trouble because the money they were promised by ITV Digital never arrived. So Portsmouth were able to take advantage of that. So Portsmouth's um, journey right up to the very top of the top half of the Premier League and all the way back down again, on both sides of that graph is dictated by the slings and arrows of like an outrageous financial fortune, if you will. And so it's really it's really it is actually impossible to separate the financial side of the game from the playing game for, for more reasons than perhaps one may think. And I'd like and in the next edition of this book, it to be addressed as to what the solutions may be, if indeed this model that, that, that football is, is essentially inherited is actually unsustainable, as is repeatedly said. Well, I think there we had actually Luke's pitch for being the Portsmouth contributor to the 2022 edition of Soconomics. <laughs> no, thank you. Of course, <laughs> God, to give you a chance, mate. Um, of course, we, we basically couldn't, really do more here than than glance over some of our favorite bits of this of this book it's it's a hugely impressive collection of theories it's the sort of thing you can have up on your on your shelf and you can return to uh, again and again but um one thing that Stefan Zamansky and Simon Cooper never lose track of is the fact that they they're lovers of the game they love football and they're always happy to talk about where the theory ends so there's always going to be more soconomics to look forward to, guys, um, which is lovely to hear. Yeah, I think that's right. And I also think for those who haven't read the book yet and are thinking about picking it up, at the very least, it will make you think about certain parts of the game differently. And I would just echo what Andy said earlier in the episode where he said that it's not dry. I mean, you, you might pick it up expecting it to be dry because it's written by an FT guy and a you know, statistician and all the rest of it. But it isn't that. And it, it doesn't lose sight of the fact that football is a very human pursuit and a very human endeavor and some of the best bits to take away are the more human end of it but it gives it context with the data and uh, as a result i think it's quite it's not a flawless book and it's not perfect uh, and i think there are some sort of problems with it but I, I think overall it's a very interesting 
sort of combination of the human stories and the data-driven stuff as well. And there's definitely more than enough in there to, to enjoy whatever your whatever type of football fan you are. Yeah, I, th- I think that's it. It never really loses the spirit of discussion. And really, that's what draws us all to football in, in, in the first place, isn't it? So I think for me, one of the most fun things about discussing football is the fact that it's um, a game that we follow collectively and especially with no fans in the stadium at the moment. We're all thinking about that a lot at the moment, but it's a collective experience that we all live very individually. So three of us or a thousand of us or 80,000 of us can all see the same thing and see it in a very different way. And I think having your perceptions challenged is one of the things that I enjoy most about discussing football. So that's what I loved most about this book. And that's what I loved most about discussing this book with you guys. And in fact, that question that Kate asked about what would you add to it? Now I've given one, I think I want to give about three or four more, you know, immediately I'm thinking about, well, where would I look at it from a Wimbledon perspective, fan owned clubs, so many things and so many things that I'm, I'm sure they'll get around to if indeed that pledge to carry on making it a living, breathing thing until they die um, holds from Simon. Yeah, it was so hard for me to, to stop asking him questions, to be honest. And actually, the other thing that it brings you, it occurs to me, is sometimes a bit of logical comfort that goes against what you might emotionally feel, which is actually quite useful as a football fan. Now We're constantly having our emotions put through the ringer. But in particular, one bit that stuck with me is the where they say that you should always, as soon as you bet your player you're offered more money for a player that you have than you consider him to be worth. You should definitely sell him and that superstars are overrated in the context of what might potentially happen to Harry Kane at Tottenham. I found that quite a comfort. Um, So yes, economics, a book with everything. Um, I wanted to give a quick plug to something that Simon has been doing as well since the lockdown. Um, He mentioned that he set up an online university called Pandemonium U and he just wanted to let us know in case any ramblers wanted to join. It's a free lecture series through Zoom on everything from wine tasting uh, to the impact of Spanish flu, which is probably quite relevant at the moment. Uh, Free to join. Just search for Pandemonium U on Facebook and I think producer Charlie has has already signed up. So yes, that is Soconomics by Simon Cooper and Stefan Samansky. We've really enjoyed it. That's it from us this time. Say bye, Luke. Uh, Goodbye. And bye, Andy. Thank you and goodbye. Catch you all next time. This was a Stakhanov production.